You're listening to a sermon from the Spring Midtown Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about the Spring and its ministry, please visit thespringmidtown.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. Well, friends, we have been in a little sermon series through this season, and it's called Finding God in the Storm. Today we're going to try to do something that I think may be impossible. We're going to try and talk about the entire book of Job in the time that we have, which is not a lot of time. So some of you who love the book of Job, because people do, and they read it all the time, uh, will know that I'm skipping things, or that I haven't spent as much time on things as maybe you'd like. I just ask for your patience in the midst of that. We don't really have time for a 42-week series on the book of Job. And some of you are really grateful for that because you don't like the book of Job. Uh, you maybe have never read it, or if you've read it, you found it weird and dark and confusing, and you don't really want to read it again because it's kind of hard to get like a foothold or a handhold in the book of Job. But I think this will be helpful today because the book of Job is a remarkable story and an amazing book of the Bible where we see some real suffering and pain, but also a God who meets us in the middle of severe storms. So if you would turn with me to Job, we'll be in chapter 2 at first. We're going to read some and then skip a little and then read some more. So we're going to be in Job 2, verse 7. Job 2, 7. So, Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and inflicted loathsome sores on Job, from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. Job took a pot shard with which to scrape himself and sat among the ashes. And his wife said to him, Do you still persist in your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as any foolish woman would speak. Shall we receive the good from the hand of God and not receive the bad? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Now, when Job's three friends heard of all these troubles that had come upon him, each of them set out from his home. Eliphaz the Tamanite, Bildad the Shuite, Zophar the Namathite, they met together to go and console and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him, and they raised their voices and wept aloud. They tore their robes and threw dust in the air upon their heads. They sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. Job said, Let the day perish in which I was born, and the night that said a man-child is conceived, let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it or light shine on it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds settle on it. Let the blackness of day terrify it. That night let thick darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There's a story I read to my children on a regular basis that I think is one of the more profound children's books in our house. And some of you will recognize it from your days as being kids reading stories. It's called Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day. And this is a story that I think is profound partly because it's a children's book and it doesn't wrap a nice neat bow on the story at the end. Things don't really work out. Most children's stories, actually, when things are bad, eventually they get good. No matter when bad things happen to good people, eventually everything works out. And, and the story has a happy ending every time because kids want happy endings. 
And the thing that amazes me about this book, Alexander doesn't get a happy ending. That's just not how it works. In fact, everything bad could possibly happen to him happens to him when you see it through the lens of a little kid. He wakes up with gum in his hair. He, he eats cereal in the morning. He doesn't find a toy in his breakfast cereal box. When he sits in the car, he doesn't get to sit by the window. At school, his best friends don't want to be his best friends. At lunchtime, he doesn't have dessert in his lunchbox, and everybody else does. His teacher doesn't like the project that he's worked so very hard on. When he goes shoe shopping after school, his, his brothers get shoes, but the store is out of the shoes he really wants, and so now he's stuck with something nobody would ever want to wear, ever. They go to his father's office, and his dad's really busy, and so he can't play with him, and his, he just ends up making a huge mess and gets in trouble. And Then he's outside, and his brothers fight with him, and he fights back, but his mom doesn't see the brothers fighting just him, and so he gets in trouble, and they don't. And he's home, and it's the end of the day, and he has to go to bed early. And his nightlight burns out, and the toy that he loves was taken away from him. And he's lying in bed, and he says to his mother what he's been saying all day. It's been a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. I want to live on the other side of the world. And his mom says, yeah, some days are like that. And that's the end of the story which blows my mind. This is a children's book that really ends there, just ends in lament. Sometimes life is hard and days suck and everything feels random and miserable and that's how sometimes it is. And the story of Job in many ways ends the same way, is full of lament and ends in the same way. Job has a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad life for long stretches. It doesn't start that way. In the beginning of Job, actually, we hear that he's a, well, he's a wealthy man and a righteous man, that life is really good for him. A man of, well, serious conviction, who's constantly coming to God and, and trying to be right with him, making sacrifices on the, the off chance somebody he knows has sinned. And God is looking down from up there and smiling on him. But Job doesn't know that. Job is just living his life and things are going well. And then we hear that up there, the devil shows up and starts talking to God and says, I mean, of course he's a good person. Look how good his life is. But if you let me destroy him, I promise he will curse you to his face. I'm betting on it. And God says, I'll take the bet. And Job doesn't know what's happening up there. He just knows that all of a sudden, messengers start showing up and his business is gone and his investments are destroyed and his employees gone, and his savings is destroyed, and his house falls down, and his children are dead. And then in the next chapter, it gets worse. We, we read in verse 7 that Satan goes from the presence of the Lord and just destroys Job's body from the soles of his feet to the top of his head. This sort of upside-down world meets an upside-down destruction of Job. He's scraping his body with shards of pottery because he's covered in boils and sores, raw flesh and miseries, sitting in dust and in ashes. And then his wife, the unwitting voice of Satan, comes and says, why? why? Why don't we just give up? And you understand why she says that, because her whole life has been destroyed. And not only that, but she's looking at her husband, who's bound to die of some weird mystery disease. And what's the point? Like, why don't we just give up now? Curse God and die. And Job says... Do we take the good from God and not the bad? Which is an amazing response, like a very surprising response in that moment. There's a lot of surprises 
in the book of Job. Suffering is not surprising to those of us who've lived for a while. Pain, tragedy, and the randomness of the world, not surprising. Confusion about what's going on up there, not surprising. What's surprising is when someone who just gets the, the stuffing beat out of them says, I know that God is still good in the midst of all this. And then Job is silent in this kind of ashy, miserable, and his friends come to him, and they don't even recognize him. That's, he's just disfigured, and they, they're so heartbroken, and they tear their clothes, and they sit with him in the dust and the ashes, and they throw dust and ashes on themselves. Their outsides are miserable like their insides, and everyone's quiet for seven days. It's a really touching moment with Job's friends, which is going to go away, by the way. The next 36 chapters or so are Job arguing with his friends. Because Job opens his mouth and says, I wish I'd never been born. I, I wish I wasn't alive. I wish somebody would just rip my day out of the calendar. There are 364 days from now on, not 365. I, I'm, I wish I was dead. And then one of his friends is going to speak up and say, well, I mean, I don't want to offend you or anything, but don't you think you should tell God you're sorry? And Job will say, what? That's sorry for what? And the next guy will say, see that right there, that's your problem. You don't realize this is all your fault. What do you mean this is all my fault? And the next guy will say, yeah, no, you deserve this. This is karma. And that is the book of Job in kind of this circular loop, them arguing and Job saying, I'm innocent for 36 chapters in great lengthy poetic form. And Job saying, look, I, like, if I could get my day in court, I'm telling you, I don't know what court that would be. I don't know who my lawyer would be. I'm sure there's one out there. I don't know if God would even show up or if God showed up, what would happen. But I do know that I would be innocent. I'm telling you, I'm innocent. And there's a lot we can take away from this kind of surprising thing that happens in Job. Uh, one, don't be like Job's friends. When tragedy strikes, don't be like Job's friends. At the very end of the book, we will hear they are wrong. Even when a lot of the stuff they say actually sounds not that wrong, they're wrong. God himself will say, if Job doesn't forgive you, I won't forgive you, which is really intense at the end of the book. And so they end up begging Job for forgiveness. They realize they've not only been bad friends, but terrible theologians. Even though they will say some things that really sound like other places in the Bible, but the stuff that they say, they don't say really in the right way at the right time. Wisdom is saying the right thing in the right way at the right time. If you say the right thing in the wrong way or at the wrong time, it's no longer the right thing. Proverbs will tell us this. We want to become wise people. James will tell us this. Be very careful with how you speak and what you say. Even little words start really big fires. Be careful. But don't deal in cliches. Don't turn the Bible and all of its wisdom and all that it says about who God is and how God loves us into something empty and small and like a little platitude that gets people through the day. That's not actually what we believe about the Bible or about God. We believe these are deep, mysterious truths that can't always be boiled down and used sort of formulaically when people have really rough seasons in life. I remember having a friend who lost her children. They died. And the next day, someone said to her, God has a plan. And she called me up outraged. Outraged. She says, does God have a plan? And I go, they shouldn't have said it. Yes, God has a plan. No, we don't need to talk about that right now. What we can do right now is we can yell at God and say, I don't understand why, what are you doing? This is outrageous. What's, what is going on up there? 
And she said, okay. And she hung up the phone. Because that was going to be her season for a very long time. And Job right, cries out to God all the way through the book. He keeps saying, I don't understand, and I'm not going to stop talking to you. So another thing we can take away from Job, one, don't be like his friends, but two, respond the way Job does in tragedy. He doesn't give up. He doesn't curse God and die. In fact, he curses his own life. He wishes he was dead. He keeps on talking to God. He doesn't give up on life. He doesn't give up on God. Even though he's furious with God, he doesn't understand what's going on up there. He keeps saying, what's going on? And you and I, who've read the beginning of the book, we have some idea what's going on up there, but even we don't really know. We know more than Job. But Job's just experiencing misery and heartbreak, and these friends who keep saying, it's all your fault. And Job resists the things that they say. You and I, we've talked from time to time about uh, the word karma and how people like that word in our time. Uh, a vague version of Hinduism or Buddhism, not even really what they mean by the word karma. Uh, we'll talk about other people who talk about the power of positive thinking, or even the Christian version of it, which is called the prosperity gospel. In this season, now that there's a pandemic running the world, people are dying. I don't hear a lot from Oprah on The Secret. I haven't heard a lot of people talking about karma lately. I haven't heard a lot of the prosperity gospel folks saying, God's going to do it for you, and all you have to do is just name it and claim it, and anything you want, if you're believing hard enough, God will give it to you. Because sometimes, for whatever reason, the world is just really hard, and life is really hard. And when that happens, we don't go, well, I guess we live in a morally balanced universe, and this is probably all my fault somehow. Maybe I'm not believing hard enough. We cry out to God, and we say, what's going on? What's going on up there? And Job will continue to do surprising things in this book. Turn with me to chapter 14. Job 14. We start at verse 1. A mortal, born of woman, few of days, and full of trouble, comes up like a flower and withers, flees like a shadow, and does not last. Do you fix your eyes on such a one? Do you bring me into judgment with you? Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? No one can. Since their days are determined and the number of their months is known to you, and you have appointed the bounds they cannot pass, look away from them and desist, that they may enjoy like laborers their days. For there is hope for a tree if it is cut down, that it will sprout again, that its shoots will not cease. Though its roots grow old in the earth and its stump dies in the ground, yet at the scent of water it will bud and put forth branches like a young plant. Stop there. There's a scholar of the book of Job who would say that this verse, uh, these verses right here are the, the key, the center of the book of Job. That Job, surprisingly enough, hopes. It's really confusing. If you've read the book of Job and you read the beginning and you see what the friends are doing and, and how Job is just in anguish and misery and having to defend himself in the process, that Job consistently seems to have hope. There will be these weird moments where in the midst of his darkness and his sorrow and the horrible, terrible day that he's having, Job will say, even if God kills me, I'll hope in him. Or at other points he'll say, I know that my Redeemer lives, and I believe that someday I'll see him. And here he says, I'm like a tree stump that's just been violently murdered. But, even though it's dead in the ground, if a little water came, it it would, it would grow again. I, I believe that there could be growth in my life again. And so it's not that hope, Job is hopeful here. It's that he's hoping to have hope again. Hoping to believe 
that God would be good enough to restore him, that there would be new growth in his life. Uh, this is a tree stump that's in my backyard right now. It's a tree that was about 35 feet tall, and I have been trying to kill it for a long time. And I'm, I'm doing my best, but this thing is just hanging on as hard as it possibly can. I've taken a chainsaw to it three different times. I uh, poured weed killer on it more than once. We had a gardener try to kill it a few times. I took a different saw to it another time. And, uh, oh yeah, I lit it on fire. Yeah, that happened. And every time the water comes, it sprouts right here. There's new growth this morning. And I thought, how is that possible? But I also knew it would happen. I knew that if I went out back this morning, I would find new growth on this tree because even at the scent of water, it wants to grow. There's still hope in this tree. There's still life in me, says Job. And I don't really know why, but I really want to grow again. I'm hoping to have hope again. At the scent of water, I might grow again. It's surprising. Surprising that Job seems to trust somehow in God, even a God he's so angry with and doesn't understand. Even a God who seems to be sort of arbitrarily destroying his life in this moment or letting that happen. Job says, I know that my Redeemer lives. Which is a phrase we pick up in worship songs. He'll say, I, even if he, if he killed me, I, I would trust in him. There's this bizarre hope in Job that has nothing to do with his present circumstances or situation. And it gives us an idea of why God might have bet on Job in the first place. That maybe Job didn't follow God just because life was so good for him. Maybe Job actually did trust and believe in this God. But now he's having to do it in impossible circumstances. In a difficult situation, there's this remarkable thing that we see in Job, and, and the word for that is faith, trust, hope. It's an amazing thing that we hear about in Scripture that sometimes it's sort of an idea, but then when things like this happen, we find out whether or not the, the rubber will really meet the road in our lives. There's a missionary in 1981, Stuart McAllister, who was going into communist Czechoslovakia, bringing Bibles and Christian literature and hymn books and those sorts of things, smuggling them into a communist nation that, well, there would be illegal. And he and his colleagues were arrested by the guards who discovered what they were carrying. And he had no idea when or if he would be released. They were thrown into prison in Czechoslovakia. And his empty time in his restricted space began to bring to the surface feelings and questions and doubts. In such circumstances, Stuart writes, we're forced to face what we mean when we speak of faith. Do we have to believe, in spite of evidence to the contrary? Do we believe no matter what? How do we handle the deep and pressing questions of our own minds as they bring expectations and as we see reality does not match? For me, in my time in prison, I expected God to do certain things and to do them in a sensible way and time. I expected that God would act fairly quickly and that I would sense his intervention. My reading of scripture, my grasp of God's promises, my trust in the reliability of God's word, the teaching I'd received, and the message I'd embraced had led me to expect certain things, and in a particular way. When this did not occur in the way that I expected or in the timing that I thought it should, I was confused and angry. I did not realize how little change had penetrated my heart, and how the pressure and the gaps were painfully revealing, and how I felt. From the perspective of time, I can now answer these questions meaningfully, but I needed the experience of doubt and hardship to show me how much I did not know or was not rooted in biblical answers. A worldview that merely answers questions intellectually is insufficient. It must also meet us existentially. 
where we live. Job is discovering that there is a hope that can meet him when he's been cut down, dead in the ground. He still believes he could live and grow again. We're going to turn to the last surprise that we're talking about in the book of Job. There are lots of surprises in this book if you read it. Job 38. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Gird up your loins like a man, and I will question you, and you shall declare to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding, who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together, and all the heavenly beings shouted for joy? And I'm going to skip to verse 25. Who has cut a channel for the torrents of rain? and a way for the thunderbolt to bring rain on a land where no one lives, on the desert which is empty of human life, to satisfy the waste and desolate land, to make the ground put forth grass. This is the word of the Lord. God answers Job. That's extremely surprising. What's been going on up there is now going on down here. Again, Misery and suffering, that makes sense. An inscrutable God doing inscrutable things far away, that's the kind of thing a lot of people believe. But that God shows up in Job's story and speaks to him, that's amazing. A lot of people read this and they think God is just, you know, coming at Job and angry. But we hear at the end of the book that God is not angry with Job. Job ends up seeing the majesty and the the mightiness of God and is blown away and and kind of responds and, and in humility, and we get a sense of who Job is, again, at the end of the book. But you have to remember that God shows up in this story not because he's mad at Job, but because he cares about him. And yet the answers that God gives are frustratingly not answers to Job's questions. There's some people who read the book of Job and they're like, this book is about theodicy. It's about the question of why good people suffer. And it's not. That's not what this book is about. That's definitely a part of the book of Job. That's definitely going on in the book of Job. But if it were about that, I think we'd get an answer. That's not actually what happens in the book of Job. Instead, we're left with questions, with God asking Job questions in response to his questions. And God's questions keep pointing to the kind of God he is, keep pointing to the story of God, actually. Well, he's a God who made us, who creates us and sustains us. He's a God who delivers us, who redeems us, who restores us. He's a God who's a savior. It's consistently what the Bible does when it talks about who God is. It points us back to who we know God is, what God has done, and what we might expect God to do in the future. And so this isn't just God looking at Job and saying, you're too small and who cares about you? This is God saying, you're really small, and I don't think you're going to understand this which doesn't stop God from trying to talk to Job and it doesn't stop Job from listening or even Job from asking the question in the first place. It's actually really okay with God that Job has been shouting and proclaiming his innocence and demanding his day in court. God knows the innocence of Job and God also doesn't tell him exactly what's going on or exactly why this has been so painful or difficult. I'm not sure the answers would really comfort Job. I think actually the answers would try to justify something that's impossible and unbelievable. I think the only answer Job can get that could possibly help him would be restoration and redemption. What Job is crying out for is the scent of water, and what God gives him is rain in verse 25. Verse 25 in that kind of little section that we ended with, uh, 
He's who's cut a torrent for the rain or tells the thunderbolts where to go. And then there are four words for dirt in Hebrew. Uh, the word for land, which is one word. Another word for desert uh, or wilderness. Um, and then two words uh, for waste or desolate places. The first word in Hebrew is the word that you get for just the earth in general. Uh, land where people live. And the second word is the word for wilderness, the desert where nobody lives. It, again, this is the Middle East, but those of us who live in Arizona know what the Middle East feels like right now. It, it's You wouldn't just go wandering out in the desert. That's not a place anyone can live. And we also know why the rain would be great good news, that God would just pour a monsoon down on the earth. And the last two words are words uh, that are related to each other, but basically they're words for where people used to live, but that have now been destroyed. So wastelands, desolated places. And on all these different parts of the earth, God is going to send rain to create new growth. The thing that Job has been crying out for, that, that God would give him the scent of water, that hope would come, that new growth would come. Suddenly God meets him and offers that. Not just hypothetical things about the God who creates the universe, but things about the God who creates the universe that really matter in our lives, that actually impact who we are. A new growth and a new season, flourishing and sprouting, the sorts of things that, that seem impossible when you're just a tree, strung, tree stump dead in the ground. And God shows up in this story and does something really miraculous. At the very end of the book of Job, we hear that, that Job's life is restored, that God gives him children again, that his daughters are beautiful and that Job names each and every one of them. We hear about wealth and prosperity and good things that happen to Job, and that leads some people to say, see the book of Job, there's a nice little bow at the end of it, God solved all the problems. But if you've been reading the book of Job from beginning to end, you know that that doesn't really solve the problems. It's, it's a gift of God. But it's also a sign of Job's hope, that he's willing to have children again. He's willing to have children again in a world that destroyed his children. He's willing to trust God with his wealth and actually build a new life again. When it was all taken away from him the last time, it could all be taken away again. There's this amazing kind of hope in Job, this amazing kind of trust in God that we see at the very end of the book, and it seems to be the result of this long conversation with a God who shows up in his story, even though there aren't really answers. G.K. Chesterton, who's a great thinker and author, died a long time ago, says this, Indeed, the book of Job avowedly only answers mystery with mystery. Job is answered with riddles, but he is comforted. Herein, indeed, is a type in the sense of a prophecy of things speaking with authority. For when he who doubts can only say, I do not understand, it is true that he who knows can only reply or repeat, you do not understand. And under that rebuke, there's always a sudden hope in the heart, a sense that something would be worth understanding. I think that's a really good understanding of what God actually says to Job. Job says, I don't understand, and God says, you don't understand. And weirdly, that creates comfort and hope. There's this, okay, so it's not that it's my fault. It's not that I did something wrong. It's not that the world makes sense somehow. It's maybe it does make sense, but I'm not going to understand it. Yes. Okay, that feels better. That feels better than what I had before, which was just misery and pain and heartache. And when God responds, not just with some answer, but also with restoration and redemption, Job is comforted. That's kind of the, the end of the book of Job. And not that he gets answers to his questions, but that he's comforted and he has hope. That we see new growth and new life in Job, like new growth and new life in a tree stump that's been violently destroyed. And so it invites you and I into this, this question, the same kind of thing that Stuart Mill, the missionary, was dealing with. Do, 
Do we really believe in a God who can meet us during a pandemic? Do we really believe in a God who, who can meet us when everything around us is crashing down, when, when people we know and love are sick, when people we know and love have died, when maybe our jobs are lost and we're not really sure what the future is going to bring and we're afraid for people we know and we've been through a tragedy and we think maybe it's going to happen again? Can we really be the kind of people who hope and trust in a God like that, believing that no matter what, in the long run, he comforts us. In the long run, he's with us. In the long run, he shows up in our story. The amazing thing for the book of Job, right, there's the idea that, that his redeemer lives, there's somebody who can trust that even if he was dead, God could bring him to life again, is that Job is not aware of Jesus, and you and I are. You and I have seen the faithfulness of God more so than Job. We've seen a God who sends Jesus to the cross and brings Jesus back from the dead. And you and I are told that if we follow Jesus, we may die, but we will never be dead. We may get hurt. In fact, we probably will if we follow Jesus. But in the grand scheme of things, we'll find that God is with us. That there is a God who doesn't just stay up there, but he comes down here. Comes down here into the mess and into the mystery, and who loves us. And who does amazing things in our lives. And that's who we follow, not just up here, but right in here. That there is a God who speaks. That there is a God who loves us. God we can trust. The question is whether that can meet us where we live whether we can learn to have hope in brand new ways, in deep ways, in this season. It's a surprising thing. It can happen in our lives. Would you pray with me?